Welcome back to the podcast, episode 79 today. This one's going to be a little bit different for you. Episode 79 is what we're calling our Dear Abby Q&A episode where we had listeners outreach to us with questions they have about mental health, couples counseling, uh, nutrition, exercise, whatever was kind of on their mind. And we got about six really good questions, and we're really excited for y'all to, to hear it today. I think there's a lot to garner here and a lot of maybe controversial takes on some normalized ideas on mental health, but I think it's really important to just open the door to them. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're, tentative, we're tentatively calling this episode Dear Stevie, a, a play on Dear Abby. And um, it's just me talking. So buckle in for, for a long, it's actually not a long episode, but buckle in uh, to hear me talk a lot about mental health. And I'll read the questions from the listeners and kind of put stuff out there. And hopefully you all can garner something from it. I do want to own that all of my answers to these questions are from my perspective and my training as a mental health counselor, uh, a nutritional mental health counselor, and someone who has a background in exercise and uh, personal training. But I also wanna own that they are my perspective. So I wanna own that I am a white, straight, cisgender male. And so I have a lot of privilege. And so these answers may not fit for everyone, but take what you can from what they are. And hopefully they do kind of plant a seed and you can explore some of these answers more. All right, so without further ado, here's me. So we are doing the question and answer episode today. Um, As the intro probably states, we have some good questions here and we're really excited to get into it. A quick note, I am recording this on my phone as something's wrong with my computer and my normal podcasting system is not up and running. So I have to look into it. So I apologize for any bad clarity or any uh, sounds in the background, any feedback that might come up. But hopefully it's not not that much because I do think my phone sometimes has better quality than um, my telehealth systems I use for counseling. So without with that disclaimer, let's kind of jump into the Q&A. So we wanted to do this because we thought it'd be good to at 79 episodes, get some feedback from our listeners, have any questions that they may have and, you know, kind of treat it like Dear Abby. And so that way we can have people write in and just have our listeners voice some of the questions that they have and, you know, hopefully provide some insight into what they're asking with some hopefully thought out answers. So um, we're going to go through, there's six that we selected from our listeners. So anyone who's listening here wrote in, these are the six that we selected. If we didn't get to you, our hope is to do this again in the future. So uh, keep sending in emails at info at the prometheanproject.org if you would like to be on a future show um, you can reach us there so the first question is from a listener named ann and the question is why can't i be mindful it kind of elaborates more on that uh, related to the practice of mindfulness and meditation and the concerns that a lot of people not just ann have with starting that practice and the struggle. In some of the subnotes of her question, she had said that she has tried to be mindful many times, but always finds herself um, really struggling to find that clarity and that presentness and talks about how uh, it's hard for her to sit still. And when she's tried to do this, she just feels like she can't. So like I said, this is a pretty common question that I get a lot from clients or just people in general when we talk about meditation or mindfulness. 
And the answer is a little bit tricky because mindfulness and meditation are skill-based practices. So they specifically are related through uh, retention of practice, meaning the more you practice it, the easier it becomes to kind of slip into the present moment, the easier it is to sit with quietness and build that window of tolerance of meditation. And so that being true, you know, it's kind of hard to create a practice if you have a hard time sitting for more than two minutes and then you pull yourself out because your thoughts get further away. So I want to give a, a couple hints on why this comes up and then maybe some things that Anne can try to create a practice of mindfulness and meditation that might slip into her daily life and find it be more accommodating than just to sit down and try to force of will it. Before I do that, I do want to say that it's really important that we talk about mindfulness and meditation as uh, a, a concept that is based on um, being able to feel stable enough in your environment to sit still for a while. This is something that not everyone illustrates, but if you are in a home that is distressing, if there's violence, if there's scarcity, if you don't have food, if you don't have electricity, if your basic needs aren't met safety-wise, practicing mindfulness and meditation can be a little helpful, but it's not going to solve any of those issues. And so I want to be real about this because oftentimes with mindfulness specifically, it's a buzzword and is often referred to in therapy or in coaching as, hey, just do this and everything's going to be okay. Will there be? some help if you're doing it in an unstable environment yeah sure it can be calming to the nervous system if you can slip into that but more importantly if you're worried about day-to-day -day needs being met food safety shelter any of that stuff it's going to be a minute shift in your nervous system if you can even do that you know if you're sitting in school worried about coming home to an abusive relationship with a parent mindful mindfulness isn't really going to help you in that situation. So any of this stuff needs to be noted that when you do these practices, they can be helpful, but they're not the only solution. What we really need in the mental health field is a more push to community-based interventions to help with those scarcity items like food, shelter, you know, safety from domestic abuse, uh, anything of that nature. So Mental health is not just the skill-based interventions like DBT, CBT, um, EMDR, all these acronyms that we use in therapy and mindfulness. It's that, but in tandem with really helping everyone in the community get to a stable place. So I know that was kind of a long note to put, but I do think that's really important and often overlooked in a lot of the work, speaking as a mental health therapist with a background in mindfulness. Um, it is feedback I've received from people and seen that asking someone who is unsafe or feels unsafe to sit still can actually be re more re-traumatizing than anything else. Now, to get to Anne's question, my guess would be that, you know, barring what we just talked about, if you're, if you're not feeling safe, if you don't have shelter, if you don't have these scarcity needs being met um, my guess would be it's a practice thing with mindfulness and sitting down and developing a practice around it because it is skill-based it's going to be a really good intervention for you Anne. and you know we we want to think outside the box with that so anyone could tell you you could sit and meditate just force yourself through it it's not really going to work because the point of meditation is never force it's just um you know, meeting things with compassionate curiosity and letting things exist and letting them kind of shift through the meditation cycle. So forcing something's never going to work. But spending time in the act of practicing mindfulness or meditation can actually be really helpful to developing a practice. And so what I mean by that is, you know, just practicing for two to five minutes a day of mindfulness of meditation or any acts related to that, it's gonna be really generative for you in the long run. So 
you know, to answer the quick question for Anne would be, you can be mindful, you can practice meditation and mindfulness. It's about figuring out what blocks are in the way and what skill sets we can work on developing to help you kind of get past that. You know, we talked about meeting basic needs. I think that's still the number one thing to do before you try to engage in any practice of this. The second thing is going to be consistency and developing a practice. And the third thing I would say would be to challenge the concept of what meditation looks like for you and what mindfulness looks like for you, because they are not always the generalized ideas of what these things are, meaning meditation can be movement-based as well. It can be activity-based. It doesn't have to be just sitting still. I know a lot of people think that that's true. And yes, you get a really good amount of feedback, positive feedback, generative feedback on doing meditation in that way because it helps build a window of tolerance and it helps build your tolerance to smaller things. And it, it's control-based and uh, allowing yourself to kind of take a minute and breathe and focus on one thing or on a, a number of things that you're paying attention if you do mindfulness meditation. But, you know, that's not always the metric that we use for it. We have to play to the strengths of the people that we're working with. So what I would say, Anne, is to figure out if the sitting still is the aspect that's kind of keeping you from practicing mindfulness. And if it is, you know, we want to envelop more of your strengths and your hobbies into it. So the things that can be mindful are pretty much anything. If you've listened to our podcast with Dr. Fer Dr. Fer I keep doing that, Dr. Christopher Willard, um, you know, one of his sayings that has been on the podcast a couple of times is not everything is mindfulness, but everything pretty much can be done mindfully. So instead of trying to practice mindfulness in a way that you've read about, or to practice meditation in a way that you've read about. Practice something that you really enjoy and really work on being present in that, in that enjoyment without judgment. You know, the four tenets of mindfulness are um, being present at this moment on purpose without judgment. And the without judgment part's super important because it's not just judging what's going on around you. It's also judging, like not judging yourself and your thoughts. So what I say in therapy when I'm working with someone on mindfulness is if I'm talking to you now, you know, imagine your hand is like on, on your center line on your chest. That's mindfulness right in front of me, being present, talking to that person. The minute I have a, a thought that moves away from that center line, you know, it might be like, oh, I hope I have pizza tonight. Um, I start to move away from mindfulness right? Because I'm not present in that moment with that other person. I'm in my head. Oh, am I going to have pizza tonight? And to take that further, because I'm a geek, uh, pizza often reminds me of Ninja Turtles. So then I say, oh yeah, the Ninja Turtle pizza looks so amazing. I've never had a pizza taste that good, the way that looks. So now I'm even further away. And then if I'm thinking about Ninja Turtles, you know I'm thinking about Raphael because he's the best Ninja Turtle. Controversial, but true. And so now I'm on Raphael, I'm on size as a weapon, I'm on the color red is a good color for a ninja of Raphael's status, it kind of speaks to that. Um, one step further, Raphael is Wolverine, Leonardo is Cyclops. If you like Raph and Wolverine, you don't like Leonardo, you don't like Cyclops. All the way to that far. So I'm so far away from the center line of talking to someone. Then if I add judgment to that, I say, oh man, Steve, why are you thinking about Ninja Turtles and Wolverine? You should be talking to that person in front of you. You should be present here. You know, most people will say, oh, that's what's going to bring us back. It's not true. That's going to pull us further away because now I'm in my head about why can't I focus? Am I a terrible therapist? What is going on? And so that's a really crucial part of mindfulness is that non-judgment because it pulls you away. So to get back to Anne's question, and this long-winded answer to it. Uh, find small periods of time throughout the day to carve out two to five minutes of practice. You can do it multiple times a day if you want to. You could do it in the morning or at night uh, and then add to that as you're doing it. So there's a basic mindfulness technique you can do. It's called grounding. Most people have probably heard about it. 
in my upcoming children's book, there are a bunch of activities on grounding that will be there if you want to check that out when it comes out. But grounding basically is using your five senses. So you can ground into your environment through using your five senses. So for five minutes, just pay attention to your senses. You can do what are five things I can see, four things I can feel, three things I can hear, two things I can smell, one thing I can taste. And if you spend time just paying attention to that and really just being in the moment and bringing your thoughts back to what you're doing with your senses, that can be your two to five minutes each day. So it can be with food, it could be at work, you can sneak these in wherever. The longer periods of mindfulness that if you really wanna pay more attention to building would be around hobbies such as reading, being present as you're reading, the smell of the book, the words that are doing that, that are on the page, not going into depth on your phone for distractions, you know, not being distracted by what's on TV, having the TV off. Those things you can do, sewing, uh, crocheting, exercise, doing all of these things with grounding into that moment will help build mindfulness. And the more you do that or make that part of your day-to-day, -day, the stronger and easier it will become. And you don't even have to add meditation, but if you can't sit still for meditation, uh, moving meditation can be just as strong, right? And so that could be similar to doing yoga. It could be, you know, in, in martial arts, some people call it walking the circle or walking the line. If you're talking about Bagua, um, it could be just going for a walk and forest bathing. That's an act of mindfulness, but there's something called mindful meditation, which instead of bringing the focus into one thing, you extend the focus to what's around you and just be really present in that. So there, there's your answer. And hopefully that was some support to the question. Uh, if anyone has more questions or are interested in learning more about this, please outreach to us again at info at the prometheanproject.org. We are working on doing some meditation and mindfulness programming next year and putting some stuff together to do some of that instruction. So thank you for outreaching, Anne. Really good question. Let's move on to question number two. So this question is from a listener. Her name is Nancy. And the question is, is forgiveness always key? Is that always something that we should strive for? You know, really working on forgiving other people. So this is a tricky question. I think all these questions are going to be really tricky. So I'm just not going to say that anymore. So it doesn't sound like I'm repeating myself. I think uh, forgiveness is a great virtue to, to aim for. I think it has its place and it can be really healing and generative. But speaking from a very specific mental health point of view, I don't think it's always the most important thing to aim for. And sometimes I don't think it's even necessary. And let me explain why. I know a lot of us have grown up with religion or spirituality or philosophy, kind of talking about the importance of forgiveness. And I don't want to take away from that because I do think, you know, there is great virtue in doing this. But I also think it gets in the way a lot of times from healing, especially with mental health. So let me just kind of explain what that means. What I'm meaning by saying that we don't always have to aim for forgiveness is that it gets in our way from actually helping us move forward with healing ourselves. And by that, I mean, I think this connotation that we have to be a forgiving person, we have to forgive everyone that's ever wronged us or everyone that's done something wrong. And that is the key metric. My concern with that is that most people will aim for that and either fail and feel really guilty about it or will create some kind of idea that they're forgiving and open up their life back to the people who've harmed them severely and then be re-traumatized or re-hurt by that person because no effective boundaries are put up to protect them. And so as a mental health practitioner solely, I'm really iffy and, you know, a lot of times I don't even push the forgiveness options for people um, in therapy because I think it's a misnomer. I think people aim for that because that's what they think they should do without taking a second and realize 
what should I actually do? And so here's my answer to the question. <laughs> Again, long-winded. Um, no, I don't think forgiveness is key. I don't think we have to aim for that all the time. I think we actually get more mileage and more healing out of um, setting strong boundaries and welcoming people to, back to humanity. And what I mean by that is you don't have to forgive someone who's wronged you. But if you hold on to that hate, that like many philosophical leaders have said before is, is like drinking poison and, and expecting the other person to die. So we want to stay away from that concept of holding on to the situation. And so forgiveness is not the only way you can move past that you know, setting firm boundaries with that person, making an ask and saying, hey, this can't continue to happen. And if it does, if you cannot respect my boundary, here's my response. And a lot of times that's like, hey, if you can't do this, I'm going to have to withdraw a little bit more and kind of step back from this relationship. Now, obviously boundaries are more nuanced than that, but that's a quick kind of rundown of what a boundary can look like is saying, this doesn't work for me. How can we kind of continue forward in this relationship? I need you to do this. If they can't do that, you, it's an action-based response and it's the individual setting the boundary that needs to take that action. So a lot of people think boundaries are like, you need to do this or else, but it's more like a question, uh, like stating what you need, saying, can you do this for me? And if you can't, my action, the individual setting the boundaries action is to step away. It is not an action on the other person. They can choose to respect your boundaries or not. If they don't, it is action oriented for you to keep a firm boundary. That's probably the hardest part with setting a boundary is following through with that response when someone shows they can't show up for you the way that you need it. So boundary setting is really key. And then the last part of what I said was about welcoming them back to humanity. Now this is something, oddly enough, I was reading some work from the Dalai Lama and he was talking about compassion and forgiveness and talking about the same attribute of like forgiveness not always being a good option because of, you know, being harmed in that cycle of, oh, I must do this, so let me make this happen. And then the other person not respecting your needs. And so his idea, and one that I think comes from, you know, ages of, um, beliefs and research is that the metric isn't forgiveness, it's welcoming back that, the, that person to humanity, realizing that they are human, that they do make mistakes, that they can be stuck in cycles, that they have their own stuff coming up is really important for the healing of the individual who's trying to move past what was wrong, how they wronged them. And so that doesn't mean forgive and forget, right? but it means holding that person accountable with boundaries, but also realizing that they may not be this evil malevolent thing, even though they were to you. And that is what helps us move away from hate and holding on to it. It's a long process. Um, I'm not saying it's as easy as just saying, hey, you're human, okay, cool. It does take a really long time to get through. Some of that can be through doing some work in therapy, to do, doing some journaling, exploring your own spirituality, religion even, and kind of doing some insightful work around that on how you move forward. But as someone who is a therapist and has worked really hard on this aspect, it does have a really good response when you can set boundaries and hold that humanity because it allows you to move past that anger and that hate you have for that person and keep them at distance to protect yourself, but also move forward in your life. And something I've really worked on cultivating. And yes, through years of practice, it's, it's occurred, um, but it's still an act that I work on every time something happens, because I think that initial reaction is to hold on to what they did to you and can be really hard to move past that. So again, forgiveness, great metric, great virtue, not always the main thing we aim for in healing. I would kind of reference it more as setting firm boundaries with people and welcoming them back to humanity as a step that you can take to move forward. This is a really good question because I get this a lot. And I think a lot of people will carry guilt if they can never get to forgiveness of someone who's harmed them. 
but I want to put this out there because I don't think you need to forgive those people who harm you. I do think you want to let go of that hate, like I've been saying, and that metric is more important for your healing and for your ability to engage with others and create a good community and uh, great relationships moving forward. A lot of times forgiveness can feel really good in the moment, but can create you know, really toxic and negative relationships. And I think that's what we want to avoid. So hopefully, Nancy, that answers your question. I'm really excited that you wrote in about that because I do think it is a big thing that's come up for me individually, personally, and then also in a professional setting. It's a big question. All right, question number three is related to the relationship between mental health, nutrition, and exercise. This is a big one. This one's from a listener. His name is Matt. This is a big one because I do think it gets really confusing as to what is that relationship between the mind and the body. So let me just first preference this by saying, I don't think there's a difference between mind and body. I think they're one and the same. So that mind-body connection, although helpful to illustrate the point what people are talking about, or that not every emotion's in your brain, it's in your body, and not everything in your body is just in your body, it's in your mind. Um, I do think it's helpful, but my personal outlook on this connection is more about this idea of mental health really being the study of the mind, the health of the mind, and the fact that the definition of mind is how you perceive your reality and your environment. And so my main belief and actually a curriculum we're working on at the Promethean Project and hopefully making a mental health workbook on is this idea of the six minds of mental health. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know a little bit about this. Um, and so I'm a big believer that we have multiple minds encapsulated within our body. And this is how we make sense of our world. And this is how we generate mental health. Um, generative mental health is by understanding these minds and really filtering any skills or changes in our life through these minds. So these minds that we talk about, I talk about specifically in therapy are, you know, your brain, which is the neurobiology mind, your digestive, digestive system, your fascia system, your heart, your nervous system, and then the last mind is the cultural mind. So if you pay attention to all of these things, this is how we make sense of the world. This is what incorporates our mental health. So going back to Matt's question about the role of nutrition and exercise in mental health, you can start to draw some parallels now to say, oh, okay, if we're looking at mental health as the health of the mind, and we know that there are these multiple minds in our body that incorporate and make up our body, almost like the Voltron of mental health, then you can make direct parallels between nu good nutrition and exercise and helping your mental health related to this. Now, I'm not going to get too far into the weeds on the science behind this, but at a very basic level, if you talk about emotions and how they work in your brain, it's related to neuroscience, the neurons in your brain. Uh, fire together and create these neural pathways and how we think, how we respond and the emotions we have in certain situations. Each part of the brain has a different uh, job. And so without getting too neurosciencey, just know that the connection to neurobiology and mental health is really big as we were talking about biology as a whole. But when we're looking at neurobiology specifically, we get neurotransmitters that help with these emotions, things like serotonin and dopamine and GABA, to name a few serotonins related to depression and happiness, calmness, dopamine's re reward system, GABA is uh, managing anxiety. These are all called neurotransmitters. Those are the building blocks of um, you know, our emotions and our neural pathways because they are what's released from neuron to neuron and adjust our emotions to react to different stimuli coming in through the rest of our body. That being said, if you look at what the building blocks are for neurotransmitters in the body, they are what we call amino acids. Amino acids are things that come in food that as we consume them, we digest them through our gut and our gut is connected to our brain 
through the gut brain access. And that's how we build neurotransmitters. So for things like serotonin, we're talking about um, tryptophan, which everyone knows from Turkey and Thanksgiving dinner and feeling tired from after eating too much. That's a misnomer. You just overeat on Thanksgiving most of the time, which is okay um, occasionally, but it, it will adjust, um, will make you more tired. It's the processing as opposed to the tryptophan itself that's making you feel so tired. But tryptophan is a really good um, example of amino acid that builds uh, neurotransmitters for your brain. So, so that's for serotonin. For dopamine, it's L-tyrosine, which you can get from foods and things of that nature too. So a full amino acid profile chain is really important for neurotransmitter health and often associated with protein intake, which is why um, protein is super important to build your body, but also for your brain and for your blood sugar to even out. So right there, if we just look at that connection to the brain and the gut, those two minds that we're talking about, there's why nutrition is really important. Now we can go even further to kind of talk about other nutrients and supplements that you can take that help out with different emotions, uh, such as, you know, magnesium is really good for anxiety. B vitamins really good for focus and attention. It can really help with depression and with ADHD, um, you know, just in general kind of regulate things. And so we could go on and on about these supplements that come into play, but the supplements are directly related to how we digest them and use them for neurotransmitters and to regulate the other processes in our uh, body and our brain and our different minds. Now, if we talk about exercise, exercise works within the nervous system regulation, right? So we know that exercising uh, produces all these endorphins and least feel good dopamine reward system responses. So we know that that is something that we can get from exercise and doing that consistently. The other thing that we want to talk about with exercise is just your nervous system response. And so if you're anxious or angry, exercise can be really good because it allows you to take all that pent up energy that you get from the fight or flight response and direct it into a healthy use to regulate your nervous system back to a state of calmness. Now, I think we've talked about this before, especially with Verlando in what we do on this podcast, but like the regulation from parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system response is directly related to things that we can do in our body, breath control, exercise, you know, coping skills, things of that nature. So exercise is a key part of regulation, regulating anxiety and depression because in depression, you're at the lowest level of your nervous system response. And what you wanna do is kickstart it back to sympathetic nervous system. So you can get to the next level, which is rest and relaxation and connection. And so exercise plays a part in both anxiety, anger, and depression to help regulate these things. One by neurochemical like drops of uh, endorphins and, and things of this nature, but two, by regulating the mind of your nervous system. So when we talk about nutrition and exercise and mental health, Matt, these are the things that we're talking about. Now, I wanna give a little disclaimer here that most people, when they talk about nutrition and exercise and mental health, uh, can come off in a negative way because they'll say, well, you're sad, just go for a run. Oh, you're sad, you just gotta eat healthier. Oh, you're anxious, oh, just don't overeat. You know, these things I think are really detrimental to that connection of nutrition and ex exercise and mental health. And so we want to stay away from that. What I'm talking about here is just benefits that you can kind of do to help your mood, not, not solve your mood. Medication is really important for a lot of mental health concerns. So I, I want you to know that I'm not saying, oh, just exercise and eating healthy will help you. Uh, can definitely help, won't hurt, but I think it's really important to realize the metric and what you're doing. So I'm not asking someone who's depressed to go run a marathon and hope that they're happy. Um, that's not what we're talking about. But I might work with someone who's depressed and if they're staying in bed all day, the challenge would be like, hey, uh, why don't you get up and go for a walk around the house? Nothing too extraneous, nothing too overstimulating, but something enough that will 
jumpstart their body into motion a little bit to help that nervous system regulation, right? Now, obviously that's just a quick example, but it does illustrate some ideas of control over feeling when you're depressed and being someone who's been depressed and oftentimes due to trauma responses, knowing what that feels like for me, obviously I can't know what that feels like for everyone else, but a general feeling of depression, understanding that, I also know that if I'm in bed all day, that's not gonna help. But if I do challenge myself to go downstairs and let the dog out or go outside and just walk around the house a couple of times, when I come back, I feel more in control because I've been able to push through that a little bit. So nutrition exercise, really important to mental health and clarity on that is really important. Again, just like mindfulness, not the end all be all that's going to solve the situation. So we want to really make this more of an integrative mode when we're talking about mental health, hence the six minds of mental health, and kind of talk about safety and needs being met, but then these small challenges that we can offer. Again, let me make it clear that nutrition and exercise alone won't solve or heal all of the issues that you're dealing with, but they can help alleviate some of the load. And it's a really important integrative approach that's going to be helpful in the long run. So thanks, Matt. Thanks for writing in on that. I really appreciate that question. So we have three more questions that we're going to do and we'll kind of move on from that to the next one. So the next question is about trauma. This one's from a listener whose name is Samuel and Sam wrote in and said, well, what's the difference between trauma with a big T and trauma with a little t. I'm not sure if the listeners know this, but this is a phrase that's often, this phrase is often used in mental health um, circles a lot. Trauma big t, trauma little t. I personally don't enjoy that phrase at all because I think sometimes it can downplay um, the idea of what the definition of little t trauma is. So let me explain what those two things are first and then talk a little bit about how we want to conceptualize this. So trauma with the big T are those things in life that you would often associate with the word trauma. So things like car accident, uh, any kind of abusive relationship, whether it's physical, sexual, or emotional, um, significant accidents, uh, loss of a loved one in a very precarious way, unexpectedly, those are what are generally constituting big T trauma. And what uh, a lot of people, if you ask them what trauma is, would say those things, right? Now, little T trauma is something that people came up with to kind of talk about the traumatic things that happen in life that aren't those bigger catastrophic events, things such as bullying, things such as neglect, things um, like having a, a substance abuse in the household when you're younger, things that we call secondary and tertiary traumas where you're not actually experiencing them, but someone you love has experienced them, having a caregiver be in jail or having these um, situations happen to you in medical traumas or you know, things of that nature, which won't often get considered as big T trauma but people will either internalize as, well, it's not big T trauma, so it's not that big of a deal, but we all kind of go through. So the reasons why I don't like this is, well, I mean, the, the concept makes sense, right? But the reason I don't like the clarification of these two as big T and little T is that depending on the individual, something that they had experienced that would be classified as little T, I'm doing air quotation marks, just so you know, um, can be extremely severe for them and can have profound responses in their life, even years and years and decades after that event. Now, the reason why this keeps coming up is because you're hearing more about trauma nowadays, especially with COVID. And you're hearing people talk about these things in this way. But, you know, I think one of the things that happens in therapy a lot of the times is I'll ask someone 
or I did earlier on in my life, I've, I've kind of moved past this now, but I'll ask someone if there's any traumatic events that they've had happen to them. And the number one response is no, no, nothing major. And then in processing their story with them a little bit more, you find there are these traumatic events that are happening, but they categorize them as not traumatic because they aren't big T traumas. So what's really cool is that over the last couple of decades, we've been moving away from this um, phrase of big T and little T. And there are now these things that we call ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences. And this is what we're kind of focusing on more rather than, well, is it big T trauma or little T trauma? Because this scaling question is an ACEs scale that you can get at from a pediatrician or a mental health practitioner unless you take a look at your life, either currently or in the past, most, mostly in early childhood experiences, that's the ACEs one, but it expands to adulthood as well. But it allows you to look at your past and lets you take a look at just how traumatic it can be through guided questionnaires. And a lot of times you'll be surprised what your score is because we often downplay these situations because we think they're not big T trauma. And so we've, yeah, it's not trauma at all. So Sam, thanks for writing in about that. Uh, the difference is, you know, they're all the same. <laughs> I, I don't know if that helps, but it's all traumatic. It all has an impact on your life. So it depends on the individual really. But if we move away from big T trauma and little T trauma, which I personally think we should, and just focus on maybe these adverse experiences that have happened without putting a label of trauma on them, we can get a better sense of how these experiences have kind of infected. No, infected is not the right word. How these experiences have affected our lives. And then rather than trying to categorize them as big T trauma or little trauma, little T trauma, we can actually just say, hey, this happened. Here's the response to that. How do we heal through this? How do we do some good work and moving forward? But really good question. It comes up a lot. And I think a lot of times, even though we don't mean to, we can downplay our experiences because we compare it to the generalized concept of trauma, stuff we see on news all the time. And we say, well, it wasn't that bad. When in reality, it was. And so we wanna honor our experiences by taking a look at them in this light. So again, Sam, thank you for that question. The next question is from a listener. Her name is Janice and her question was related to this idea of pushing down experiences, pushing down emotions versus containing them. And I think this is a really good question because I think with mental health, we often hear we shouldn't, we need to process, right? We always need to process these emotions. We need to honor these emotions. We need to experience them, experience them and we need to tolerate them and move through them so we can heal again. A concept that I think is 100% spot on, we, we do need to do that, but I think there are times and moments that we need to prioritize this, and other times we need to take a step back and say, I just don't have the bandwidth or the energy right now to do this. How can I contain this until I do have that space, right? So a big thing with working with clients for me has always been, are they ready to unpack some of these things? Because if they aren't and we try to force it, um, which we never do, but generally, sometimes it does happen by accident, um, you're not going to get really good work done as an individual and as a therapist in that relationship because that person isn't ready to or has the tolerance to, to unpack and process at that moment. So rather than this idea of pushing things down so you don't deal with them, which we know is unhealthy for mental health, usually comes back to bite you in the ass and a way in which you don't have control. So we think that pushing down these emotions and experiences is our control. It's a false sense of control though, because then it comes back without us having con any control. And it might come out as us yelling at someone in a store or breaking something, or you know, it's doing something as a survival trait to move forward and not have any uh, response to it. So, this is, is kind of important is the different processing of not pushing down and avoiding, right? But containing so that you can deal with these things later. So 
Recently, I got certified to do EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's really great for processing traumas and you know stuck emotions and things of that nature. One of the exercises we do in this type of therapy is called the container exercise in which we envision we do do some um, you know work on creating this mental container that we allow ourselves to put stuff away and seal it up for a small period of time until we can until we're ready to unpack it and process it. So we usually do it at the end of a session if um, people are dysregulated. And so what we'll do is do the container exercise, put it away to, to hold on to and not deal with until the next time we meet. So that way we can start un, unpacking and processing and have some genuine um, control over the situation. So that's the difference between um, pushing something down and containing it or compartmentalizing it. These things are different, but they, it, when you look at them at the service, it's really hard to tell the difference between these. So, uh, so that is a really good question, Janice. And I think one of the, the in-betweens is this idea of like, yeah, I'm going to put this away for later, but my intent is to come back to it. That makes all the difference in doing any of this processing. Whereas if you push it down, you're just like, nope, 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 not going not gonna to pay attention to it. And as I said earlier, that just comes back to bite you in the ass. So uh, some techniques, um, if you're interested in more techniques on how to shift that around, again, outreach to us at our email, info at the prometheanproject.org, sorry. <laughs> and, um, you know, we can send you some supports around that. Great question, as always. I'm loving these questions. I don't, listeners, I don't know how you're feeling about this because I know I'm kind of going on and on, but I, I think these questions are really pertinent and, and I thank all the listeners for, for submitting them because I think uh, they're challenging me to a, a response and stuff I do every day, but I also hope that you listeners are getting some good feedback on this, some thoughts and some gems of uh, seeds to plant on your own progress forward. So our last question is from a listener named Ella. And Ella asked the question, is it okay to fake it until you make it? So real quick question, to, real quick answer for that would be, it's always okay to do whatever you need to do to make it through a situation. Now, if we're asking that question in terms of, well, is it generally more generative to fake it until you make it or more limiting to fake it until you make it? That's a different answer. But off the cuff, is it okay to do it? Yeah, you can do it. Um, can be helpful for some people sometimes. I don't think it's a long-term solution towards uh, anything. But if you're, if we jump to the next phrase of the question, like I said, um, it's generally, in my personal experience, more limiting than generative to fake it until you make it. And here's why. The idea of fake it till you make it is this idea that you can't do that thing. This idea that, oh, I'm not capable, capable of doing this thing, so I need to pretend I can, and then hopefully I'll get around to that. The general concept of it's not necessarily bad, but it's a little bit flawed because you're going into it with this limited mindset of saying, I can't do this, I'm going to fake it until maybe it does happen, or I'm going to fake it so people don't know I can't do this. And generally, those two things don't allow you to honor what you're going through or the situation that you're going through. And by honor, I don't mean like, yeah, this is awesome. Let's, let's have a party. But I mean, we have a range of emotions, a spectrum of emotions that are really important. So we need to be able to build tolerance to certain emotions sometimes. And to, by building this tolerance, we have to acknowledge these things that are happening. So rather than fake it until you make it, my general idea on this concept is allow yourself that space to say that that idea of a beginner's mind and saying, hey, I may not be really good at this or I may not really be able to do this right now, but it is something that I want to work on. And I have the space and the control and the tolerance to start trying to do that. Right. So you're acknowledging that you actually have the space to do it. You may just be a beginner you have some really good strengths that could lead towards doing this thing, whatever it is. 
And acknowledging that is creating a generative mindset of saying, hey, there's options here. And so I'm in control of how I want to approach this and build this skill set or build this situation. Right. If you're faking it, you're going in with that concept, oh, this is fake until it becomes real. There's not much of you know, there's not much that you can do with that to a certain point. Right. And so if we're talking about a new endeavor. You want to acknowledge, oh, I have the skill set, but I might be a beginner, so let me go in with a beginner's mind, which is a yoga concept, a martial arts concept, a mindfulness concept. Uh, really great concept. If I'm not going to get into it too much here, but if you're interested, again, reach out to us or do some research on what beginner's mind is. I, I think that's generally more generative in how you approach something rather than saying, I have to fake it to get there. Now, if we're talking about emotions, I really don't think you should ever fake emotions because I think a lot of times that gets that push down effect like we talked about last time with Janice's question. And so it doesn't let you process. I do think you should allow yourself space to be like, you know what, I'm sad and that's okay. Um, I'm gonna experience this and then I'm going to do something within my control to kind of shift this emotional state if possible. And that could be anything from medication, to contacting a therapist, contacting crisis, talking to a loved one, exercising, um, coping skills, all of these things can help you shift emotional states. But I think if you allow yourself that space to be where you're at, then you have more generative control over how you move forward. When you say I have to fake it, you create a situation in which you're not truly in control or you have this fake control of oh, I'm gonna fake it so that people don't know I'm sad but it doesn't let you process through because that sadness is still gonna be there. It's just gonna be behind a mask that you've created. So Ella, I hope that answers your question. And I'm really excited by all these questions and you know, hopefully you listeners and those of you listeners who wrote in can get some ideas from this and can kind of start that journey for your movement forward. So thank you again for taking the time and listening to this whole thing of me just rambling on with these ideas. And uh, if you have any questions or if you have any want to be on a future episode with some of these questions, I don't think we're gonna do them all the time, but periodically I think we'll do a couple. Um, feel free to outreach to us at info at the prometheanproject.org. As always, it's been an honor to sit with you all today. And uh, you know, I hope you gain something from this episode. Thank you.